This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books in Asian Studies channel. Today, we are here with Dr. Clara Iwasaki, assistant professor in the East Asian Studies Department at University of Alberta, Canada. Hello, Dr. Iwasaki, and welcome to our channel. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you for, for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Rethinking the Modern Chinese Canon, Textual Refractions in the Trans-Pacific, published by Cambria Press Sinophone World Series in 2020. Um, you know, I'm just going to just jump into the questions and uh, I will I will uh, ask you, you know, um, about your work and, you know, just to get to know you better. And the first question that I usually uh, like to ask um, is, you know, how did you get to 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 write about this project? And, you know, what what interested you um, in writing about the ways in which texts and their authors travel and transform over the span of almost a century, I would say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, that's, a, I think, a good question. Um, I originally was looking at, uh, wrote a, this is a book that was based on my um, doctoral dissertation, and the framing at the time um, was really looking at um, migration, which, you know, there's still a certain amount of that um, in the book. Um, but I was also really interested in, in kind of like, um, particular itineraries and sort of tracing people. Um, And then, you know, once I finished and I was, you know, thinking about revising this into a book, um, one of the things that had sort of bothered me or, yeah, I suppose like bothered me about the project was that um, there were a number of, of pieces to the puzzle that seemed to actually not be Chinese literature. And as someone who was um, doing a, a degree in Chinese literature, this kind of made me slightly I- insecure. Um, and so, you know, in kind of having a little bit more distance and having a little bit more time um, to, to look at the project and, and think about it more, I, I decided to kind of highlight that a bit more. And so this is really kind of how I, I started to look at less, you know, where people went and, you know, what they did there and more, you know, how are texts kind of moving in and out of translation? I started to become a lot more interested in the translational aspect of this and the kind of intertextual aspect of this. And so um, part of this was attempting to get a handle on uh, material that I had not really found a good way to frame. Um, and in terms of the time span, which you, you kind of asked about, I kind of just followed where these texts led. Um, and so the framing to a certain extent is just sort of based on, on what I had. And I think, you know, I talk a little bit, I think in the, in the introduction about, um, you know, kind of spilling a bit over the cold war divide, which I think is something that, um, you know, other works have, have 
kind of ended with, you know, the kind of Cold War detente or, you know, begun after 1980 when China opens up and things like that. But, um, you know, kind of following the text and kind of seeing where these things go, um, you know, that kind of temporal aspect became a little bit more complicated. And so um, this is why it, it ended up again, sort of spilling out into um, the present day in ways that um, in the dissertation, it, it was not really, um, it, it hadn't really taken that form at the time. Sure, 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 sure. And I mean, you know, it's the, also the time, as you said, and the distance, right, that one takes from the dissertation into the book. And um, I found it very fascinating to think about texts and the, the place where they are written and how that, you know, influences the transmission, the translation and, you know, the text itself. And um, I, yeah, that was very <laughs> fascinating to me, but I'll ask you later about it. Um, I just um, want to mention that the book comprises of uh, four chapters and the introduction and the conclusions, of course, and offers a very rich account. And um, I would say, again, fascinating analysis of the ways in which that these texts have traveled and how the translators themselves have negotiated their roles in the the. the you know, the work of translation, but also in, in relation to the authors and in the social networks um, uh, that they, they formed. And um, of course, everything played a, a, a role in the reception and canonization of texts and uh, uh, their authors originating in China. So there's a, there are a lot of layers here of relations and exchanges that uh, the book um, makes, uh, makes clear. And, you know, the introduction uh, entitled No No Heroes, No Villains introduces us to the book and uh, is reading um, of four canonical Chinese writers. So Xiao Hong, Yu Tao Fu, Lao She, and Zhang Ailing. In relation to, and here I'll quote um, uh, a phrase from, from the introduction, their translations, interpolations, and interpretations in different languages, revealing them to be more worldly than previously supposed. End of quote. And... Here, um, I, I was really, really happy to to see how you interrogate literature um, and how literature can cross languages and national boundaries through translation. And to this end, um, how the book examines texts that move in and out of different uh, milieus, different languages, or um, right, negotiate their uh, their identity in relation to their origin. So, um, you know, in, in their travels, these texts are transformed across the Pacific and develop new connections and new cultural lives. And my question here um, is, uh, how is this phenomenon happening through the works of Xiao Hong, Yuta Fu Laoshe, and uh, Zhang Ailing? And whether, you know, what is this position in relation to Sinophone studies as well as world literature? Um, you know, if, if that, that makes sense. Yeah, um, that's a that's a super big question. Um, you know, not I'm not I'm not mad about it, but um, that's a, there's a lot of, of things there. So I guess to sort of answer the first part, um, the first part of that question, um, I am kind of looking at a number of, of constellations of texts. Um, uh, you know, and in doing so, I, I hope um, rethinking you know the kind of origins of you know four pretty canonical modern Chinese writers. Um, and I think one of the things that certainly gave me a pretty hard time in, in trying to write and frame the book was um, the fact that I think a lot of this multilingualism um, and kind of interpolation and interpretation are kind of manifesting themselves in different ways um, in all four cases. So for Xiao Hong, 
um, I am really interested in looking at the way that she is both translated um, and that she kind of responds to uh, leftist literature, particularly like American leftist literature, um, which is something that has been known. I, I believe Howard Goldblatt has written about this quite a bit, but um, it's not really talked about. Um, you know, often when we think of Xiao Hong, she is like, a, you know, kind of a, a writer of Manchuria, a writer of Harbin, that kind of thing. Um, for Yu Dafu, his kind of movement is is... Um, at least the movement that I talk about, he certainly moves around a lot and, and writes a lot about other places, but um, his his kind of translation is, is largely almost biographical. Um, you know, how he's used, how he's invoked, how he continues to kind of be a figure that comes up in a number of different kind of national discourses. And um, for Laosha, you know, this is perhaps again, sort of a return to translation. Um, he collaborates on his own English translations. He, you know, is then kind of translated and interpolated by a number of different translators in different ways. Um, and for Zhang Ailin, you know, I'm looking in many ways at self-translation, um, how she uh, cannibalizes her own texts, how she rewrites her own texts, you know, what she's doing when she's writing, um, particularly writing autobiography. Um, and so in terms of how this relates uh, to kind of return to the second part of that, you know, really big question um, is um, in terms of Sinophone studies, uh, like this, I think also caused me a fair amount of angst, uh, you know, especially in the dissertation writing stage. Um, and I am, you know, really indebted to um, a manuscript workshop that I did um, with uh, E.K. Tan, who, you know, I think kind of very kindly, but very incisively pointed out to me um, in reading the manuscript that um, while Certainly, some of my approach was informed by Sinophone studies. I was uh, often not doing Sinophone studies because I was, you know, looking at Anglophone texts and um, Japanese texts and things like that. And uh, you know, kind of gave me his um, his blessing to to say, yeah, that's not what you're doing. Um, so, you know, that's not to say that Sinophone studies is not important or did not inform this work. Um, you know, a lot of the work that many um, people have done uh, to look at um, literature written in Chinese outside of the borders of, of China proper um, is certainly, you know, a kind of reason that I was able to kind of look at these things and able to kind of conceive of them as not just, um, you know, Xiao Hong, Yu Dafu, Lao Xia, and Zhang Ailing are all people who are in the Columbia Anthology of Modern Chinese Literature. These are very canonical Chinese writers, which they are, um, but there's something a little bit more to them. And that's, you know, what I want to talk about here. Um, and so, you know, Sinophone Studies has really, I think, liberated me and, and many other people to kind of be able to, to think through that um, without having to kind of litigate whether or not you can do that. Um, and in terms of world literature, um, you know, probably this is something that I came to relatively late in writing the book, but um, some of these people have international reputations and some of them don't. Um, but all of them, you know, within their lifetime and sometimes in their after their literary afterlife um, have engaged with um, other languages and other literatures. Um, and some of them, you know, are, are recognized for that. Um, Zhang Ailing is probably the most prominent one of these. Um, and yet, you know, using the kind of lens of world literature, looking at the ways that they're translated, the ways that they're kind of positioned, um, was also a really important part 
um, in kind of thinking through this, um, you know, non-sinophone component um, of the work. So um, I think that would be my uh, really long uh, and wordy answer to that question. Oh, no, it's perfect. And, you know, it does um, it does describe very well the, the work of the introduction. And, um, of course, you know, the the approach and also, you know, the the work of thinking um, that that the book does and you, you did before the book came into being um, after the dissertation and then, you know, in, in the manuscript workshops and, and all of that. And I think it's important to, to mention all of this um, as, you know, part of what the book means. Um, and, you know, when I was reading, I, I noticed that um, there, there are some words such as transpecific and refractive relations that hold key positions in the book. And um, I found the, the concept of refractive relations very, very gripping. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about this and the, the work they do in the book. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's, again, like, a, you know, there, there's a lot that I could talk about there. But um, in terms of the Trans-Pacific, um, you know, again, I, I think this was something that I came to after finishing the dissertation, um, you know, I think you know, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps you, you might agree um, when you're writing the dissertation, you're so focused on the scholarship that you've already gathered. Um, you, you are not sometimes always aware of um, literature that's coming out while you're writing or, or literature that might um, have to do with the bigger picture. I relate. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, this is at least what happened to me in terms of the Trans-Pacific, which is, you know, I, I finished, I filed my dissertation, um, you know, I, I felt kind of liberated and then, uh, you know, was, you know, being very cool and, and kind of doing more reading and, and was like, oh, well, there was this, you know, uh, Trans-Pacific Studies reader that came out, you know, a few years before and I, I just didn't know about it. And, and that was, I think, my first kind of introduction to the Trans-Pacific. Obviously, it's a term that's been around for a while. Um, but I think, you know, discovering that was really useful to me um, in terms of figuring out a way to contextualize the, the research that I was already doing. Um, and, you know, in terms of that, you know, looking at the ways that um, people and texts have moved across the Pacific, the kind of like historical connections that um, people in the Trans-Pacific have had to one another, um, and particularly um, the ways that these relations have been um, implicated in, you know, uh, neo-colonialism, colonialism, you know, kind of moving back and forth between different areas, right, this kind of multi-directionality, all of those things were very important and things that I um, had been really struggling uh, to think about, or, you know, struggling to kind of contextualize for myself. And so that, um, you know, this kind of scholarship, which, you know, in the time between filing the dissertation and publishing this book, there have been so many other, you know, really great studies of trans-Pacific scholarship um, that I have, you know, certainly benefited from. Um, and those those things have all kind of helped me, I think, justify it and think about the sort of work that I want to do and that I wanted to do in this book. Um, and in terms of refractive relations, um, this is something that I uh, developed um, as a way to kind of talk about the sorts of phenomena that I was seeing in the book and that, you know, kind of make up all of the clusters of, of works that, that kind of make up each chapter. Um, and this is based on um, Lefebvre's uh, sort of idea of, of translation as refraction. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, again, in, in sort of moving into, you know, translation scholarship and things like that, this was something that I, I kind of discovered again in, in rewriting the book, um, rewriting the, the dissertation into the book. And I found this to be quite helpful um, in terms of uh, doing a thing that I, I don't know why I decided to write about this because it's just so hard, um, which is to write about different versions of the same book. <laughs> Um, and I, I guess we'll probably get into this later, but, um, you know, if you're writing about a, you know, a, a Chinese language original and then an Anglophone translation and then a Chinese language translation of a Anglophone translation, um, it becomes very difficult to think about this. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Lefebvre's way of, of looking at refraction and, um, you know, kind of looking at this as a sort of an alteration or a component, that was something that was really helpful to me. And so um, I kind of tried to describe what I was seeing in in these terms. And so refractive relations is a term that I I made um, to try to think through, you know, how how is a text changed um, through translation? How is a text changed through its travel, right? That there is something that happens to it um, and, you know, this kind of, I think, speaks to the larger project of translation studies scholarship, which is to kind of rethink the perspective that, uh, you know, a translation is simply a dependent part of the original, right? And this is something that, you know, many people have, have already talked about. But, um, you know, this kind of idea of, of traveling through or passing through or being changed, right, encountering something and being changed, all of those things were, I think, really important to me um, in trying to describe what I was seeing. Um, and seeing this in, in multiple different ways. So um, that's that was my thought in, in coming up with that. That is fascinating. And I really liked the, 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 the term, right? Refraction and refractive relations. And, you know, I mean, it goes very, very subtly and, and very um, intricately through, through all the chapters, of course. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's it kind of, I don't know, it just helps with the the you know, framing and everything. And I, I do have to confess that I did want to see an image of what refraction means. <laughs> um, but it, it's really, um, it's a very, uh, very interesting uh, concept, in my opinion. So thank, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just to, to get into into the, the matter of things more uh, in detail, um, I, um, I'll ask, you know, questions about the chapters, and I'll start with, with the first one. Uh, and entitled Second Chances, and this chapter focuses on uh, Xiao Hong's works, uh, Trans-Pacific Translation, and puts that in relation with a few American leftist authors, um, and specifically here, uh, Agnes Midley and Upton Sinclair. And, um, you know, the, the questions that, that I had here um, were, you know, whether... Um, or more example, more specifically, what are some of the interpretations and reinterpretations Xiao Hong and the same authors um, uh, that I just mentioned um, see in the context of this book? And um, you know, what what can we do with these interpretations and reinterpretations? As well as how did they come into contact, and how did that contact impact their work's reception? Um, because, you know, here we're talking about multiple geographical and intellectual contexts um, and, of course, uh, of their legacy. You know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think you described this very, very nicely. And I, um, 
you know, this is an extremely frivolous comment, but uh, there were many times in writing this chapter when I, I wish that all of the Americans that I was writing about did not have a last name that began with S. It, it just made it um, very difficult to, to keep everybody um, distinct and, and not, you know, uh, alliterate too much. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of uh, Xiao Hong, um, you know, as you kind of sum up really nicely, you know, she does interface with all of these writers in, in different ways. Um, and so, you know, for Upton Sinclair, she has this really tangential connection, um, which, you know, seems to be, you know, most directly um, in the form of a letter um, that he writes to her to thank her for a book that she sent him. Um, and, you know, it is not, you know, a particularly deep letter. It, it is in some ways a sort of form letter and um, also one in which he misspells her name, uh, you, you know, so I, I don't know how much care he was really putting into this, but um you know, uh, for those of us who have a difficult name, I think we all kind of relate to that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, and yet, right, her engagement with his work is really more profound. Um, that, you know, his work, The Jungle, features fairly prominently in her short story, Hands, um, in which her character has this kind of like intertextual moment um, where she sees um, the death of a character in the jungle as really reflecting back on her own life. Um, and this is something that I had noticed that Xiao Hong does quite often um, in the case of other authors, um, and, and particularly, I think, female authors. Uh, and she does this with Agnes Smedley. And so, you know, in after talking about Sinclair's work, um, and Sinclair also has, you know, a number of other kind of Chinese connections, um, and is also, you know, the kind of intermediary between these two is Agnes Smedley, who, um, you know, is an American author, but was really active in China, you know, as a reporter at the time. Um, so she has this essay um, that is, like many things with Xiao Hong, is a very strange and very weird and very rich uh, essay where she reflects on reading Smedley's novel um, mm-hmm. and you know, in doing so has a very similar kind of reflection after reading this novel where she feels that, um, you know, she understands this account that Smedley has of a woman who um, is really berated by her husband for not feeling grateful enough for this gift that he's giving her of cloth by which she can like clothe herself. Um, And then she kind of uses this to reflect on, um, you know, something that she has observed in her own life um, Mm -hmm. with, to friend, male friends of hers who see the book and kind of make fun of it and make fun of women's writing um, and sort of ends this with saying, well, if I can kind of see that a, a male beggar um, is a human being, you know, why can't they kind of extend the same respect to, to female authors? Um, and it, it is, again, this kind of like very meandering, but also kind of powerful piece in which she is really attempting to put herself um kind of practicing a a kind of very radical empathy where she's saying, well, I can understand this, right? I can understand this as a woman. I can understand this as an author, right? Why can't these male friends of mine do the same kind of, you know, pay them the same respect? And so, you know, this is something that I um, talk about quite a quite a bit in, in relation to Xiao Hong and how she's engaging with these um, works of uh, fairly major works of American leftist literature. Um, and then, sort of, I turn to 
um, the way that uh, Helen Foster Snow, who is uh, probably best known as the the wife of Edgar Snow, ex-wife of Edgar Snow, um, but is a really interesting person in her own right. Um, and one of the things that I don't think she's particularly well known for is the fact that she is a translator um, and you know, helped Edgar Snow with with a collection of of um, Chinese fiction, um, one of the first collections of translations into English. Um, but she also translated um, Xiao Hong's uh, one of Xiao Hong's short stories. And you know, I contrast this with the way that Xiao Hong is is interpreting American leftist fiction, which is that Snow and her co translator Jiao Wu. Um, really rewrite um, the trans uh, the, uh, the short story that they um, that they translate and this is a not particularly well-known um, short story called a night in the stables and uh, they translate it but also manage to insert a new character um, and in doing so kind of create a whole new sort of subplot um, that is, I think, much more kind of didactic and diagnostic. Um, and so, you know, I, I try to use this to talk about different ways of reading, um, different ways in which Xiao Hong is, is kind of engaging with, you know, American fiction and also being engaged with um, and being published in the United States. And unfortunately, you know, we don't really know what Xiao Hong would have thought about this translation if she had had a chance to look at it. Um, she died before it was published. Um, so, you know, in in the case of this chapter, I, I'm really hoping to kind of um, problematize uh, our idea of Xiao Hong, you know, if, if one does have an idea of her, as someone who had a very short life that was primarily conducted within um, the bounds of China proper, you know, she didn't really travel in the same ways that other authors did, um, and that she mostly wrote about, you know, her childhood and her hometown, that kind of thing. Um, and that, you know, if you look at some of these other connections, she really is engaging in very substantial ways um, with other with other people. And then, you know, I conclude with, with a sort of final, um, you know, translation by Howard Goldblatt that came out only very recently. But you know, all of these things, I think, gesture towards a, a kind of more worldly quality to her um, and a one that is kind of deeply implicated in translation, right, and in refraction, right, that she kind of becomes different um, and is interpreted in different ways and interprets in turn, you know, different authors in different ways, um, you know, throughout the course of her, of her uh, writerly life. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's I was, as you were describing, I was thinking that's a wonderful network for the lack of a better word, but you know, this interpretation and reinterpretation and how the you know her her name and her work, you know, were were interpreted in the United States and then, you know, there were publications about it, right? It it just paints a fascinating picture of, of these interconnections that sometimes are um not visible or we don't read about them right? mm-hmm. we do research uh, the traditional way uh, of you know just reading the, the the corpus that it's it's available and um you know being on our own way to write so um yeah i found that very very intriguing and very um uh, very interesting to write about and you know prompting hopefully more more research um on on this matter no? yeah um, mm-hmm. sorry Oh no! Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just about to ask more about the chapter. Uh, so, you know, if there was anything you wanted to add here, then you know, I'll 
Oh, uh, I mean, I think just in terms of further research, I do think there's there's more work to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at, you know, there's certainly other people that you can research. She is a pretty well known author, and and you know, there's also more work to do uncovering other people. But you know, I think one of the things I, I did find um, mm-hmm. was there's still more to do with her. So I, I hope you know other people will also do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading more work coming from you, but absolutely <laughs> as well. <laughs> that's, that's very kind of you. Very, very kind of you. Um, so, you know, uh, just to, to ride on that wave, um, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, the more details about in which, uh, about the, the ways in which the texts transform each other across languages and contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm thinking here, and again, I absolutely sympathize with the, the comment about the names, like, you know, Snuggly and Xiao Hong, Xiao Hong and Snow and Wu, and then Xiao Hong Circle. And then, yeah. Like, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in terms of this, I think, how do I say this? So, Smedley and Xiao Hong both moved in Lu Xun's circle. And I think this is something that Richard so. Um, has talked about um, in his first book. Um, but, you know, there's this kind of circle of, of pretty cosmopolitan, you know, leftist people. And Smedley is a really key part of, of that and a kind of key literary broker in terms of, you know, kind of facilitating translation and facilitating access to a lot of the people in, in um, Lu Xun's circle. And Xiao Hong is definitely one of those. Um so, you know, I, I think that part has been known. I don't know if Xiao Hong and Smedley's relationship, which again, like, is present in the textual record, mm-hmm. but not in a lot of detail, right? They both write something very short about the other one. Um, Xiao Hong appears very briefly um, in one of Smedley's books of war reportage, and then Xiao Hong has written this, you know, again, like, not particularly famous essay about. Um, about reading her novel. Um, but they, you know, certainly knew each other. They had a relationship with one another um, in Shanghai. They then reconnect in Hong Kong um, when Xiao Hong moves there and Smedley's, I think, on her way back to America, um, you know, after kind of being done with covering the war. And then, you know, in terms of their politics, I think in terms of a lot of the ways that they're they're kind of thinking about each other, I think they're more or less on the same page. Smedley, I think in particular, I think really sees Xiao Hong as, or, or at least position, positions her in her writing as a really I, kind of important version of Chinese feminism. And I think something that she sees and, and says very interestingly is, is being in advance of Western feminism. Um, and, you know, I, I this is a sort of odd comparison, but she kind of says, you know, Xiao Hong is really kind of what we should be looking for, you know, or looking to as feminists, not Madame Chiang Kai-shek, mm-hmm. not the Song sisters who are very, very privileged. And she, you know, kind of says, well, would they be this famous if they had not had the same opportunities? Um, and so, you know, Smedley is in many ways kind of using Xiao Hong as an object lesson. Xiao Hong herself, I think, is really interested in looking at Smedley as a fellow female writer. Um, I think she's maybe less interested in, in looking at her as a, as a particular national case. Um, and, and I think she's really interested in making connections through gender. Um, 
you know, and I, I think that's the way that they both connect and maybe have some differences with one another. Um, in terms of snow, um, I will just say, I know that Jiawu is part of this story. Um, I don't have very much information about this person. Um, they are one of Snow's translation partners, but I don't know very much about them beyond that. So um, while it seems like I'm kind of excluding them, this is not intentional. It's just because I have not really been able to find very much um, through research about them. So the person that I do know about is, is Helen Foster Snow, um, and interestingly, Smedley and Snow, although they did work together in this case, um, sort of famously did not really get along. Um, and while Smedley is a kind of, you know, avowed communist and was uh, sort of revealed later to be a, a communist spy, um, Snow is much more kind of in line with a, a more Pearl Buck style, like liberal democratic idea of US-China relations. She was a really big kind of proponent of American exceptionalism. And in fact, I think is, is attempting to kind of uh, make the case that America and China are uniquely liberally democratic um, in a way that obviously didn't shake out um, in the rest of history. Um, but one of the things that um, you know Snow's biographer, um, whose name Kelly Long um, kind of talks about is, is Snow has this often this uh, tendency to use writing and translating at, in order to serve a kind of diagnostic function, um, mm -hmm. that she's often kind of using her writing about China or her translations of China to kind of posit a problem. Um, and mm -hmm. this, is off, this is what happens when she translates slash rewrites the story um, of The Night in the Stables in that um, the original Xiao Hong story is a kind of, uh, you know, story of this poor... Um, stable hand who is really looking forward to his uh, old friend, the landowner who he grew up with coming to visit his country estate. Um, and he kind of, uh, you know, thinks about all of the times they had together and all of these friends who became bandits and died. Um, and Snow and Wu take a character who's really only mentioned in passing, um, Yang Lao San or uh, uh, Yang the Third. Um, and then make him into a very, a more central character. Um, and they do this by kind of making him into this idealistic young martyr and talking about him a lot more. And also, um, I think playing on the transliteration of young as young um, to say, oh, there's this young idealistic dead man and this old man who compromised his ideals. And these two people are kind of, you know, the uh, sort of, you know, you should do this and you should not have done this, um, you know, the kind of good and bad case scenario um, for how to live your life. And that is, a, I think, a really radical reinterpretation of what Xiao Hong is doing. It is perhaps not a kind of translation that we would want to do now. Um, but I think it does show how Snow saw what Xiao Hong is doing. Um, and she does this quite a lot. Um, in a lot of her characterizations of Xiao Hong, she really romanticizes and kind of makes more didactic a lot of um, both Xiao Hong's writing and Xiao Hong's biography when she introduces her. And so, you know, in this way, although Smedley and Snow are both American, they move in slightly different circles. And they also, I think, kind of 
deal with her quite differently. Um, if that mm-hmm. answers the question. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I was just thinking here, yeah, it, it definitely, um, you know, there are definitely two, two directions um, in which Xiaohong's works are, um, you know, interpreted or thought about or, you know, engaged with. Um, and um, yeah, I'm not sure if today we would be able to to intervene so much in a translation that you know would be contracted by a press or or you know, um, but it, you know that's that's besides the point here whether <laughs> we could do it or not. Um, but uh, um, you know, and then you know, uh, I uh, I'll just uh, move to to the next question about you know chapter two, uh, but also you know kind of having in mind this idea of of translation and archiving and you know uh, portraying um, a certain personality in a way or another. Um, but here, uh, instead of Xiaohong, we're talking about Yutafu, and uh, the chapter is entitled Yutafu is Dead, Long Live Yutafu. Um, and uh, here, the, the chapter explores the controversy, if one can call it that, about uh, his death and consequently his works archiving in a traditional way. Mm-hmm. So um, his trajectory starts in China, right? He moves to Japan, then to Singapore, then to Sumatra. Well, he works as a writer and as, as a translator. Um but uh, his Trans-Pacific commemoration and the way he's remembered appeared to be part of a race between nationalisms. Mm-hmm. So his memory shapes the framing of the Pacific War. And here I was curious to know, like, how are these movements happening and what are some of the ways in which uh, his work and memory are refracted in terms of politics, uh, genre, geography? Um, yeah, yeah. Um- that thank you again for that uh, really big question, um, which you know there, there's a lot I you know I, I can talk about, but um, I, I will just open by saying um, this is uh, I, I was not expecting when I started to work on this chapter to spend so much time uh, writing about maybe it could be said to be gossip. It could be said to be conspiracy theories about Yudafu's death. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I was not expecting to to do so much around that, but that Mm -hmm. is uh, where I ended up um, in in writing about this. And so Mm -hmm. um, this what I, why I kind of started down this very strange road of, again, looking at some cons- literary conspiracy theories, um, was encountering a very strange piece in Japanese by the Japanese writer uh, Sato Haruo, who had been friends with Yudafu, and then they had had a bit of a falling out, which I, I talk about in the book. And again, this is something that I think uh, Christopher Kivney and, and some other people have already talked about. Um, but it's a very strange piece, which is called uh, Kyuyu ni Yobikakeru, or in calling on an old friend. 
Um, and this is a, it was a, a radio broadcast that aired in 1941, shortly after um, the occupation of America, uh, American occupation of Japan had begun. Um, and it was read on the air. Um, and this was an open letter, uh, if I can call it that, to Yudafu from Sato Haruo, um, kind of asking to get in touch. And this was such a strange piece um, that I, I was just not sure. I, I just wanted to know more about it. Um, and, and then in, in kind of dealing with, I think, the way that Yudafu has been commemorated um, through Sato Haruo, uh, through Suzuki Masao, who's a, a, a Japanese scholar um, and a kind of Yudafu expert in Japan, um, through In uh, Kim Chu, Huang Jin Shu, the Malaysian Sinopho Malaysian writer, um, and then uh, Luo Yimin, who is Yudafu's biographer in China. Um, one of the things that kind of emerged from this was that everyone, all, all of these people, whether they are scholars, writers, or former friends, we're all doing a very similar thing, which is kind of whether physically or kind of rhetorically, they would return to Sumatra and attempt to find out what happened to him. Um, and they would never find him. Hmm. And so, you know, that was something that I started to think about, you know, uh, in terms of Huang Jinshu, in, in terms of In Kim Chu, he's very aware of all of these people. Um, and it's clearly both uh, doing it and also making fun of it. And that that is part of what In Kim Chu does, I, I think, is especially in that kind of period of his writing is, is to just kind of make fun of scholars, mostly scholars and, and some other writers, um, and, and just kind of mock that. And yet, you know, this kind of reenacting of a search for a missing man. Um, and for Sato Haruo, this is largely empty. This is aired on NHK radio, uh, you know, I really have to thank um, some of the scholars that I corresponded with who were much more of an expert on uh, the me mechanics of the NHK. Um, and that was Jung Ji-hee in particular, uh, who you know explained to me that the NHK was not broadcast anywhere besides Japan. So you know whether he was really attempting to find him or not, I, I don't really think he was. Um, you know, and then these other people who have, you know, gone to Sumatra, uh, in the case of Suzuki Maso, to actually try to find him and through, you know, interviewing soldiers who were involved in his arrest, um, and people who knew them, um, or Lo Yimin, who has also done research, uh, all of these people are kind of converging on Sumatra and then attempting to, you know, unearth his body, which we can never find, right? No one has ever found his body. Um, and so in the absence of finding the body, we find the corpus, right? We find this corpus of oral history. We find this corpus of his own, right? We find the testimony of people like Hu Yuji who were present when he was arrested, right? All of these things that we kind of, you know, continue to paw over. And I, you know, I must acknowledge, like I myself am kind of now complicit in this in, you know, once again, like pawing over all of these other people's accounts of this, right? And, and kind of continuing to talk about it. Um, but, you know, in all of these cases, everyone is attempting to find their Yudafu and, and finding a different one, right? And because it's their particular version of him, no one else is ever satisfied, 
right? Um, and so, you know, for Sato Haruo, he's really trying to invoke uh, this kind of like pan-Asianism, which is a decision. Um, you know, Suzuki Masao is attempting to kind of uh, assign responsibility, right, and to kind of bury Yudafu for good. Um, Lo Yimin, at the end of his biography, you know, kind of documents this confrontation that he has had with Suzuki Masao and declares that Yudafu will never die, um, you know, until people are punished for his death, like the Yudafu will never die. Um, and then, you know, In Kim Chu is essentially like, well, you all claim him, right? Japan claims him, China claims him, but he was here, right? He was here in the South Seas. He was here in Nanyang. So deal with it. And he's ours, right? And, and so all of these people kind of want him, right? He means something different to all of them, right? And and so overall, you know, what I am attempting to do is, is to look at why is everyone so obsessed with him, right? What makes him among all of the writers who lost their lives during the Pacific War, why, what makes him so... Uh, you know, the kind of white whale, you know, of all of these people. And why do we all kind of obsessively reenact attempting to find this person who can never be found? Um, and so, you know, in this way, each each Udafu that we all find is a refraction, right? Um, all of the people that they find are a refraction and therefore no one else is ever satisfied. He means something different to everybody. Um, and he means something different to Japan, um, he means something different to, you know, kind of contemporary Chinese biographers. He means something different to, you know, Nanyang, South Seas, Sinophone writers, right? All of these people are are kind of trying to find their Yudafu, and he means something different to all of them. Absolutely. And I, they're they're very invested in uh, in, in this. And I, I was fascinated by the the investment in in you know finding um more clues or finding more um, works or, you know, just, just painting this, this, this picture. Right. Um, that... Yeah. He is uh, in the circumstances of his death, like the circumstances of him taking on a new identity, you know, and then not finding him, but maybe finding someone who might have killed him, you know, like all of this stuff is just kind of grasping at these extremely intangible clues, right. In the archive. And, and then, you know, they're always something that you can debunk, right? They're always something that you can doubt. And, and that, you know, has been, I, I think, very interesting to think about. But, you know, ultimately, I, I think it's less productive, at least in my opinion, to try to find his body. And it's more productive to try to think about why all of us remain so obsessed with him. <laughs> I, I mean, I am also obsessed, right? I am not. I'm not divorced from this, right? I, I have also participated in this. Now I'm implicated. So, yeah. I'm, I'm starting. I, I feel the the fever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's a long dark road. So, <laughs> oh, I mean, winters are long in Canada. So. <laughs> very true. Yeah, that that is very, that's very true. And yeah, I mean, there there's just like so much like you know pointing fingers. There's so much blame, right? And and you know, part of this, I think that remains just, you know, perhaps the thing that's buried under all of this is the kind of unresolved issues between, you know, Japan and China related to the Pacific War, right? right? And then also this idea of the kind of nanlai zuojia, the, the writers who went south, um, who kind of are, you know, are seen to still belong to China, right? All of these things are kind of still part of you know, the, the legacy here. 
and I think, you know, that's something that I, I still remain like quite interested in. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah, it is very, very interesting. And um, I think um, a, a little bit of, um, you know, the last few minutes um, <clears throat> kind of uh, nicely segue into into the, the, the third chapter uh, entitled Pieces of a Broken Mirror. And I'm thinking here of these pieces, right, that one finds in the archive and, you know, or paints or tries to fit into to a mold. Um, but, uh, you know, with, with chapter three, um, the, the book pays more, uh, more attention to Lao She and his works translators. Um, and here I use the word translator as, you know, very broadly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm specifically uh, thinking about uh, Mao Xiaomi and Helena Kuo, as well as the debate surrounding Lao She's novel, The Drum Singers. Mm-hmm. And um, here... Um, you know, I, I really wanted to to ask about the history behind this novel's production, translation, and distribution, mm-hmm. and uh, whether the translators' works um, or more how did the translations work challenge the 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 canonization and the, the unidirectional cultural transfers happening mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, that um, you know. Thank you again for a really thoughtful, you know, and a very thorough question. Um, so this is uh, probably one of the times where I, I did not understand why I did this to myself to write about three different versions of the same novel and then, you know, have to find different ways to, to talk about them in the book. Um, you know, I, I suppose you and, and other possible readers of the book can let me know if, if those were clear or not. But... <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, that that was good because sometimes I, I you know I thought well maybe I should do like numbers or letter you know I don't know but um so so basically you know this chapter is really talking about a, a moment of 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 textual rupture um, that occurred within the canon of Laosha um, and this mm-hmm. is kind of occurs between you know 1950. And, you know, when he dies sometime between then and when he dies during the Cultural Revolution. And, um, you know, I think his, uh, Lao Shou's trip um, immediately after uh, the Pacific War to the United States for several years is somewhat known. Um, but I don't think that his work on the drum singers is, is particularly well known. Um, it is one of the works that he wrote while he was in the United States. Um, and so he co- wrote and completed a novel um, while he was in the United States. He collaborated on an English translation um, with the Chinese American writer and translator, Helena Guo. And uh, before it was published, he decided to return to China um, and it came out in the United States. Uh, when he left, he took the original Chinese language uh, manuscript with him, um, intending to publish it, I think. Uh, although, you know, in letters back to his publishers and his agent, he is a little bit dismissive of it. So I, I don't know if the fact that it, it never came out um, in China is intentional or not. Um, however, during this time after he returns to China, the manuscript, the original manuscript goes missing. And so until 1980, when a Chinese translation of the English translation comes out, the only extant translation, and in fact, the version that we have that is the closest uh, to Lao Shah 
is the English version. And so um, the chapter explores what we do um, with a text like that. Um, And then to further complicate this, um, in looking at Helena Guo's own writing, it became quite clear to me that she has put in a number of themes and some very specific language of her own. Um, and again, without this original, it's very difficult to say, right, um, how where Laosha ends and Helena Guo begins. Um, and so this becomes kind of difficult. <laughs> uh, this becomes kind of difficult to deal with. Um, and so then what do we, we call this novel? Um, and then to further complicate this, the Chinese translation, uh, translated by Ma Xiaomi, um, who is the daughter of uh, Ma Zhongrong and Luo Shu, the, the Chinese, uh, you know, kind of very short-lived Chinese writer, um, mm-hmm. also makes interventions into the text. Um, she makes interventions that she then, for the most part, footnotes um, and explains why she's done this. But she takes out a sex scene um, and says in the footnote, well no other Laosha novel that I'm aware of has a sex scene. So I'm taking this out. Um, and she does this without really saying, well, if there's, there was a sex scene and Laosha wouldn't have put one in, well then who put it in? Right. Um, yeah. uh, you know, but I, I think she's kind of acknowledging or at least like attempting to kind of mitigate the fact that she feels this text has been compromised. Um, the other thing that she does is she changes the, the subject of a play. Um, from uh, she changes it from uh, Li Zicheng, like a, a kind of drum song about Li Zicheng, the the kind of uh, Mingqing rebel uh, who who takes uh, takes the capital of Beijing and and changes this to Liang Hongyu, who is uh, is sort of a Southern Song woman warrior. Uh, who defends uh, the Southern Song, I believe it's the Southern Song, about uh, against the Jurchens, which again, given Laosha's Manchu heritage is an odd choice. Um, so, you know, so this is a text that by the time that it is published in the 1980s has already been through several hands and there is no original that we can consult. Um, and so for a, a fairly long time, um, the Ma Xiaoming translation has been included in most collections of Lao Shou's works. It is noted that she did translate it from English, um, but it's just attributed to Lao Shou. It is not attributed to anybody else. Um, in the most recent collected complete works of, of his, um, they have chosen to put the English translation in alongside the Ma Xiaomi Chinese translation. Um, and I, I find this really interesting. Um, I find the whole situation very interesting, but you know, I think throughout the years we have really seen a kind of struggle with, you know, how do you bring Laosha's works that were not available to people who are probably the most interested in him? Um, Laosha's Anglophone works in the 1950s were were not particularly well received, uh, except for the rick- rickshaw boy translation, which he hated. Um, and I think he was very disappointed that no one liked any of the other ones. Um, and then, so how do you bring it into back into Chinese? But then how do you acknowledge the fact that these works are somewhat compromised and are the result of a lot of negotiation um, and possibly 
pretty intense rewriting, um, you know, on the part of these translators. The thing that perhaps makes this a bit different than the Helena Snow or Helena Foster Snow, uh, Helen, sorry, Helen Foster Snow, (laughs) too many Helens, too many S's, um, you know, case is that Laosha spoke English. He worked Mm -hmm. with Helena Cole quite closely and he seems to have been okay with the translation. And so this, this does maybe make this less of like a kind of aggressive intervention or perhaps more of a, into more of a ghost writing situation. But again, in the absence of particular letters, it's sort of hard to say. Um, and so these were the things that I was struggling with. Um, one of the other things to kind of speak to the question that you, you asked about unidirectionality, right, is, is often I think we feel that um, or, you know, uh, it, it is often thought that, you know, in terms of translation, there's like a source text and then it disperses outward into the world through English translation, French translation, right? Some kind of translation that brings it into, right, what Casanova calls the world republic of letters, right? It brings it into the wider literary marketplace and that's kind of the end of the story. Um, and in the case of the drum singers, you really see works kind of moving from Chinese into English and then back again, right? That this is not simply, you know, from the periphery to the center, right? It is in fact a much more complicated trajectory um, and one that, you know, by the sort of most recent kind of collection of, of Lao Shou's works kind of acknowledges the fact that there are these kind of imperfections in the canon um, in ways that I, I really do find quite interesting. I do too. Um, and specifically this... Um... Right, the that the fact that you know it was um, uh, translated into English, and then you know there's some sort of intervention, and then there's it's translated back into Chinese, and then you know we're we're talking about these uh, um, you know versions or the same work, or you know exactly as you said, wh- how do we call it, right? <laughs> and all these parts, I mean, is it a triptych or is it a you know <laughs> what what is it in the end? And um, I really find this. Um, fascinating in terms of, of, you know, exchanges and, and translation uh, itself. Um, and I would definitely like to, to know more. Maybe, you know, we could find in an archives, right, something. That... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has been sort of frustrating that Helena Guo does not seem to have an archive. Um, she mm-hmm. was married to a Chinese-American painter, um, and I did email his son, just she had, she didn't have children, but she did have stepchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did email one of his sons and just asked, and he said, I don't, I don't think there's anything. So it's possible that it's out there somewhere. Um, and if there, it is, I would love to see it because I, I do think it would be really interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of, we don't, we're missing the smoking gun, you know, <laughs> or at least I am missing the smoking gun. It may be out there somewhere um, in terms of like what, how they, this, this kind of, um, this kind of arrangement came to be like how they agreed on it or what they agreed to that kind of thing. And I, I would also love to know eventually. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in all of these, uh, these things, in all the, 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 you know, uh, missing pieces or, you know, um, of, of these, uh, different, uh, parts, uh, of, of a moving, uh, frame, I, I'm, I, when I was reading the book, I couldn't stop but thinking of, of the detective work that you had to do to put everything together and think through it to, you know, for the book, of course, to to have, to be coherent, but also f- for the chapters to to have a certain certain form. So, you know, I admire that detective work that you did. 
That's very, very kind of you. Um, And I mean, it was fun. I I do actually really enjoy a lot of this kind of like, okay, so who was where and like, what happened? And like, when did this happen? And, you know, perhaps I missed my vocation, and I should have become some kind of like detective, you know, and and solved murders or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I think... One of the other things that I I kind of realized, especially in relation to this chapter, is that Ma Xiaomi and Helena Guo are both women and both like are really missing that kind of more substantial archive. Um, And, you know, I think it also revealed some of the things that we kind of lean on when we want to find out about a person, right? There are certainly like reference works. There are certainly, you know, many figures for whom we know quite a bit. Um, And then for people who are maybe writers second and translators or editors or agents first, those people often don't seem to leave that same kind of archival footprint. And that can make these things very difficult. I, in fact, really knew very little about Ma Xiaomi into, before I realized that her father was Ma Zhongrong. And I only found that out because um, I managed to uh, get uh, University of Alberta's interlibrary loan to, to lend, uh, you know, get another library to lend me a first edition of the drum singers in, in Chinese. And so, yeah, it does really kind of speak to I think, you know, when you're trying to, to do work like this, to really try to cover your bases. And, and um, even if you can't, you know, get time away or you can't, you know, travel someplace uh, to try to see, you know, what the limits of your ILL can do and that kind of thing. And I would not have been able to, to know so much um, if I had not kind of thought, well, I, I wonder if I could get a first edition. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure there are more sophisticated ways, but um, it you do when you're kind of looking at people who are are less or not alive or not well known. Um, y- those things can be so valuable, right? If you can't like find an archive of letters or something like that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and I do find um, I'll agree with with you know the wonderfulness of ILL. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely. I might say abused it a few times, but oh, you know. I mean, really, truly, like shout outs to all ILL librarians for really doing, you know, as I think especially, you know, as graduate students or even as junior faculty who, you know, you don't do not have like gigantic budgets to travel wherever, right? They really make a lot of this stuff possible and really have to do so much work to try to get people to give us stuff. So yeah, I have definitely like pushed the boundaries. <laughs> of the ILL system, both at UCLA when I did my grad work and, you know, at U of A when I, when I did, uh, you know, more work and, you know, we, we really couldn't do it without them. So, you know, yeah, I, uh, I, they're the unsung heroes of many a book, I would say, and mine, you know, definitely. I second that, you know, towards my work. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and, you know, speaking of books and, um, you know, multiple volumes at the same time. Um, you know, we uh, with Zhang Ailing, we actually have three uh, posthumously published manuscripts uh, that that you analyze in in chapter four. Um, and um, you know, the chapter is entitled um, "In My End Is My Beginning." And um, here we discover the the change in in Zhang's literary output, as you you mentioned. 
but also this this change is a process of self-translation and rewriting as a form of literary parasitism mm-hmm. that was shaped and informed by the Trans-Pacific um, um, uh, journey of her texts between the United States and, and Taiwan. And um, here I'm, I'm very curious to know more about the parasitism uh, okay. concept um, and the way this chapter operationalizes it and to offer a more complex picture of, of Zhang Ailing's work and life in relation to her publishers, translators, uh, uh, libraries, you know, and <laughs> her families as well, friends, uh, you know, her, her network. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you again for, for the question. And I, I do just want to take a, a little bit of time to, to really congratulate you on a truly fantastic segue. Um, I'm really bad at those. And I, I just want to gesture towards the fact that that was a, a really smooth one. I, I really appreciate that. But, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> As a as a non practitioner of the smooth segue, I, I really appreciated that. Um, so uh, you know, to 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 kind of return to this this question, um, I kind of was not. How do I say this? I was not sure how I was going to approach Zhang Eileen. I knew that I wanted to talk about her, um, but you know, I think as as you might be aware. Um, and many, perhaps some of the listeners are aware, Zhang Ailing is is very famous and has many, many, many things already written about her. And again, I don't know why I decided to, to write on somebody like this, but somehow I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think at this point I, I did realize that I, I wanted to write about the way that she kind of recycles, or in, as I say in the book, kind of parasitizes her previous work. And this is something that many people have kind of observed about her later career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am really indebted to um, a migration symposium that my colleague uh, Christopher Lupke did um, at the U of A over um, one of the first summers that I was uh, was here. Um, and he had invited a, an anthropologist from University of Chicago, I believe her name is, is Judy Chu, um, and she talked about parasitism. And, and you know, I, I kind of asked her more about that because I, I did feel like that might be what I was interested in or something that might kind of help me contextualize this kind of cannibalization and particularly the this idea of um, the a bug in the system, some sort of disruptive element to a previously functioning, in this case, literary system. And she recommended uh, Michelle Sayre's work on the parasite, which she was working on for, for something else. And so, you know, I, I did find this work to be helpful um, in terms of thinking about this interruption or this static I think he often describes it as a static, you know, in the system, a shock to the system, a bug in the system um, Mm. of a disruption that eventually integrates itself into the system. And that I found particularly helpful in thinking about how she is dealing with rewriting while making very significant changes to what she's doing. Um, and in terms of a parasite, I also found that 
this idea of the parasite and what I kind of go on to talk about as the parent as the parasite and the child as the parasite um, that she explores throughout these um, posthumously published autobiographical novels are things that she also seems to explore in looking at parents and children, um, parents in the Anglophone books and children in the Sinophone, the Xiaochuanyuan, uh, uh, Little Reunions, um, mm-hmm. as kind of disruptive to the family system, right? Mm-hmm. As, as being kind of monstrous, as being kind of predatory. Um, and I found it really a, a way to think about how she shifts who is the parasite in the, in the first two um, Anglophone novels, she's really talking about murderous parents, right? Parents who commit this unnatural act of, of killing your children um, Mm. or killing their children, which uh, Zhang Ailing kind of noted cynic, um, you know, kind of nonchalantly says, well, you know, in in Confucianism, it's not that bad. They're really just a part of you. So it's really not like real murder, um, which is, you know, clearly intended to be, very sardonic. Um, but she kind of describes this way in which um, her father or the father of, in the novel uh, kind mm-hmm. of colludes in the death of his son and the attempted death of, of the uh, sort of Zhang Ailing stand-in character. And these things seem to be at least somewhat based on real events, um, at least in the case of her illness. Mm-hmm. By the Sinophone novel, she's really kind of shifted this to the child as this kind of unnatural figure, right? Uh, and in the main character, Julie, Jolie, kind of embodying the figure of the murderous child, <clears throat> this unnatural child who can't love her her parent, um, as well as the murderous parent. Uh, you know, this novel, unlike the Anglophone novel, depicts um, an abortion, right? Mm-hmm. She aborts the only child that she she ever conceives. And so, you know, all of these things, I thought, fit together quite nicely um, and and sort of deal with um, these issues quite nicely. So um, that that's sort of how I, I thought through this idea of parasitism and in particular, the kind of Michelle Sayre's idea of the parasite. Um, so, you know, in terms of that's sort of how I, I was thinking about that particular concept. Um, in terms of Zhang Ailing in relation to all of this kind of constellation of like publishers, translators, friends, and fans. Um, I, I believe I opened the chapter with, um, you know, this threatened biography that Zhu Xining was attempted, was thinking of writing about yeah. her um, and these ways in which she herself had sort of been biographized um, both in Hu Lancheng, her ex-husband's work. Uh, yeah. She did not seem to be a huge fan of that. No. <laughs> Uh, uh, which um, I, I think is fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fair to not want your ex-husband to write about you. Um, and then, you, you know, the kind of way that she has been received, um, you know, through him in Taiwan. And so, you know, I, I also find this to be kind of an interesting idea. Um, and, you know, I... I don't think I really pushed this through in the chapter, but, you know, biographer as parasite, right? Self-biography as parasite, right? All of these things where she is at least attempting to, right? And then eventually decides not to represent herself, right? Rather than to constantly be biographized. And she becomes sort of like a recluse because so many people want to know about her. 
Um, and then, you know, thinking about the ways that she is remembered, thinking about the ways that her writing reflects on her and her kind of authorial legacy and that kind of thing. And this is something that her two kind of closest friends, um, the songs are, are very concerned about. And um, they, I think have personal reservations, I think particularly about extramarital affairs and abortions. Um, But I think one thing that perhaps we have not talked about that much when we have talked about um, Zhang Ailing's work is that even though she was in the U.S., her market was in, um, you know, martial law Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And they were also very concerned about her potential reception if she depicts a woman very willingly having a relationship with a member of the Wang Jingwei collaborationist government, right? The Japanese, the kind of government in Shanghai that was collaborating with the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, politics as well as biography really kind of are in play in her decision ultimately to not publish those novels in her lifetime, even though, you know, certainly in the case of um, the Chinese language novel, she was very eager to do it at one point. So, you know, all of these things, I think, are sort of, you know, all of a piece, right, Um, in terms of her attempting to disrupt her own legacy, and then eventually kind of capitulating to it, right? She never really, you know, airs these kind of more disruptive elements of of how she's thought of her life. Um, We only know them after her death, like, well, well after her death. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it was very, um, very, well, interesting, for sure. But also, um, you know, um, just um, awakening some some emotions, you know, and reading about uh, Zhang Ailing and trying to intervene in, in her own, uh, you know, archiving. Yeah. And uh, not, you know, being very successful to the extent maybe she would have wanted um, was, um, was, yeah, was quite uh, touching to, to read about it. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed that. It was... Uh... Yeah, it, it was an it was an interesting one to write um, for for a number of reasons, but um, yeah, it, it it was a fun one to think through. <laughs> it it looks like it for sure, and uh, you know, and you, you did mention all of these uh, these parts, and you know how how they do come together um, in in her story and about the the three uh, published manuscripts um, that you know have um, have sometimes different reference points or explore the same concept, but in different ways. Um, and, um, you know, in, in the conclusions where um, uh, you, you entitled the conclusions in praise of a messiness, um, I would, you know, like to submit the fact that it's, yes, it's messiness, but it's also very, very interesting <laughs> at the same time. But, uh, um, you know, uh, here you we're back to, to the concept of refraction and the possibilities of multilingual Chinese uh, literature. And uh, it is fasc- fascinating, again, and I'm using this word a lot, but it really is, um, to see how... Um, you know, I'll quote here that literary refraction holds the possibility of revealing alternate angles or hidden traces that are missed in the anthologization of national and world literatures. And while these refractions do not fit into a single unified image of an author, the resulting messy effects result in multiple and often contradictory images, which highlight the richness of the material. 
end of quote. And, you know, here I would like to invite you to unpack the quote for us, um, especially after we have talked about the four authors and, you know, their their, um, back and forth geographically and as well as literary um, and, uh, you know, their canonization ultimately. Um, Well, you know, first of all, uh, thank you for for finding this, you know, messy but interesting. Uh, That is what I was, you know, in my... uh, Heart of hearts hoping might 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 happen, but yeah. you know I, I think the the title of the conclusion you know in many ways was putting a lot of the kind of anxieties that I had about this book project out there, um, which is I, I think in you know the midst of revising it and and you know doing additional research and and all of these things, I was very kind of felt like it was not that clean right that there were all of these kind of details. There were, you know, kind of large constellation of different people. There were a lot of things that, you know, as, as I think we've talked about that, I don't know, right? Like I, I don't know everything about Helena Kuo. I don't know everything about Ma Xiaomi. There's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, even though I've attempted to find out as much as I could, that I, I still don't know. Um, and so, but, you know, in, in thinking through that, I do feel like there's some, some kind of and perhaps this is also just because I am by nature just a very messy person and I'm attempting to to kind of justify this to myself, but um, that there is some benefit, I think, to not having a very clean image. And I think I've, I've increasingly started to think about this um, as I have been teaching modern Chinese literature and translation every year, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, we give you know, we teach sinking for Yu Dafu, and that's his mm-hmm. story, right? We teach yeah. hands for Xiao Hong, and that's her story, right? And and there's like perhaps a, a wider variety of things for Zhang Ailing, but, you know, we kind of pare these things down and give students a very kind of clean image of a person. And, you know, Yu Dafu wrote sinking in 1921, and he lived for a very long time after that. Um, you know, there, there's a little bit more to them. And I, I sometimes think that, you know, in, you know, doing the research for this book and, and thinking through some of this stuff, that we are sometimes a little bit in danger of, of having a very static image of, of a lot of these canonical authors, um, because they are so well known. I think sometimes their shadow can kind of get flattened out and, and it can loom kind of large. And we may think we know everything about them, there, there may in fact be more that we can know about that. And so, um, you know, as I, I, as I've said, writing about different versions of the same thing is just very hard and very frustrating, but I do think it can be very rewarding and that, you know, I think we can owe it to these figures and we can owe it to ourselves as, as people that want to learn, you know, and, and do learn about, you know, modern Chinese literature and that kind of thing to not just have a single unified image, right. That it is, there is benefit in seeing the fuzziness in this outline um, and that there can be more to that. And in fact, that it can lead us to look at ways in which these authors were much more worldly, were much more trans-Pacific than we had originally thought. Um, And so, you know, this is what I'm hoping to do in the book. Um, And, you know, hopefully this means that, you know, a a reader will learn something about one of these authors that they didn't know already, um, may think about them in a slightly different way. You know, that was the goal, um, you know, hopefully, uh, for the, for the book. So, you know, this is kind of why I talk so much about messiness at the end. 
<laughs> I see, and I, I I totally agree. And you know, I um um I do like to when you know when I teach, I do like to give the less known or you know less um, circulated uh, short stories or you know details uh, to the students. And you know, I, I just say, well, it's intellectually cool to know about the. <laughs> It seems to have worked with some. I don't know, but you know, and we'll, we'll see how it works. And um, you know, I really hope. I do sometimes when I do assign weird stuff. Sometimes I get in my reviews and like, why did Professor Iwasaki assign us this weird stuff? And it's like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I, I try to I try to balance it, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it can be good, right? Like we're in you're in college to learn something, so yeah. you know, exactly. you should learn something. Yeah, oh, I totally agree. Yes, yeah. uh, you know, and and with that, uh, I don't know. I was thinking whether if there's anything we we missed so far, or you know, whether you you would like to to add anything um, else to you know the my questions to you know chapters and you know because we went quite um, chronologically in a way, like you know yeah. chapter one, two, three, four. Uh, but you know, if there's anything um, here, um, you know, um, I guess let me think. I think. Well, okay, just one one very brief thing, which is um, in chapter three, you know, if anyone after having listened to me talk about this is not to- totally turned off, uh, just in terms of chapter three, one thing that I, I didn't really talk about is um, sort of talking specifically about the gender of translation um, in that chapter, that a lot of the interventions that are, are made um, in chapter three are really around uh, female characters and female sexuality. So if that is something that you would like to know about, um, you can definitely read that chapter. That is like a, a kind of component of that. But um, other than that, I, I don't, I think we've covered a lot here. And I, you know, your questions are a large part of, of why we were able to do that. So thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for you know, um, taking the time to to actually answer, you know, my, my questions that were just all over the place. But, you know, um, and, you know, I, I really love to, to talk about this, but I think we have taken a lot of your time and I don't want to impose because, you know, we're in the middle of the semester. So, you know, I know how that goes. But, you know, I was just wondering really fast whether you could tell us more about your current projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I have been thinking about a couple different projects, and I think um, the one that I am working on and thinking about right now um, Mm -hmm. is maybe returning in certain ways to some of the issues that come up in the in the Yudafu chapter in a bit of of, of a different way um, and returning to the Pacific War. Um, In this case, it would also deal with translation, but I, I am kind of interested in looking at the ways that um, the Pacific War and maybe after that, um, the sort of aftermath of the establishment of the People's Republic of China are represented and translated um, into a North American context. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the in this case, interpreting translation a lot more broadly in terms of, you know, looking at images, um, looking at textual translations of things like the Little Red Book, um, Mm -hmm. and then looking at, you know, the sort of after effects of a lot of these events. Um, I I certainly think, you know, a lot of the kind of issues that come up in terms of, um, you know, differing ideas of Japanese war crimes and things like that are are also things that continue to play out in the contemporary day. So um, that is a project that I'm I'm starting to move forward with. I think a a sort of second project that eventually I would also like to to look at is um, 
also related to the the concept of multilingualism in world literature um, and maybe attempting to rethink uh, this kind of world literature center to periphery, you know, kind of the the West and the rest, you know, all of these kind of non-Western languages having to be translated into, you know, a kind of world literature in the center. Um, and so I have been starting to think about um, migrant worker literature in Taiwan um, and the kind of awards and contests that go on with that. Um, most of those writings don't you know, aren't written in Chinese, but are translated into Chinese in order to be adjudicated. Um, and that's a different kind of multilingualism and a different kind of center that I, I think I would be quite interested to look at. So uh, those are the things I'll be working on um, moving forward. I look very much forward to them. And, you know, I hope they, they come to, to fruition. But more than that, I really hope that, you know, that that you enjoy the process of, of, of doing the research and, you know, discover very cool things uh, on the way. Um, but, you know, with that, thank you so very much for, for talking to us today. And I, I really hope to, to see you soon for another book interview. Well, that, thank you so much for having me. And I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for all of your questions. Uh, I had a great time. <laughs>